of the line of that song, you have no rival, you have no equal. Jesus is on his throne this morning, and that's why we gather to worship today. Hey, we got a special birthday in the house today. Somebody's freaking out there, like, how did they know? Um, the special birthday today is Living Hope turns three years old this morning, which is awesome, and it's a faithfulness of Jesus. And I was talking to Andy out in the lobby, and uh, he said he was driving to church this morning, and he remembered the days where we would have to push cold, cold chair carts up to the middle school and unload everything. And many of you were with us during that season, and it was the worst. But um, Jesus has been so kind to us, and to look back on God's faithfulness and where we once sat in a middle school uh, cafeteria that was stinky. Uh, now we sit in three different units now that we call Living Hope Columbus, and the Lord is just so good to us, and he is so kind. And uh, it's an, just an honor to be part of his story that he's writing here. So if you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. You can turn it on, flip it open, whatever works for you, and it'll be on our screen as well. Philippians chapter 3, as we continue, and we're almost done with the book of Philippians. We're in week number 20 as we've been walking verse by verse through this book, and this morning we're talking about this idea of eating elephants, eating elephants. So if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's Word, Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 15, and we're going to read through verse 21, and Paul writes these words to the church in Philippi. Therefore, let us all who are mature think this way, and if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained, verse 17. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now I say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today. And God, we pray that you would speak to us so clearly this morning. God, that we would lay aside any uh, issues that we brought in, Lord, anything that's weighing on our shoulders, Lord, that we would just set those aside for a moment and completely focus on Jesus. That's why we gather this morning. God, would you soften our hearts as Pastor Joe prayed. God, would you give us ears to hear from you this morning. And Jesus, may we take the truth that you speak to us each individually from your word, and may we live it out this week as we seek Jesus. Move in our midst this morning. Your spirit is welcome in this place. We love you, Father. Thanks for the privilege it is to be part of your family. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you were with us last week, just to play a little bit of catch up, we really honed in on Philippians 3, verse 10, looking at this idea, this goal of the Christian life. And we said in 2021, the encouragement last week from God's word was to pursue Jesus with every ounce of our being, especially in this new year, to know Christ personally, not know of him, but to know him personally, to know the power of his resurrection and also to know the fellowship of his suffering. And if you were able to be with us last week, maybe you saw online, I feel like God just did something really special in our midst. And I talked to many of you this week. It was kind of one of those unique moments that a church looks back on. 
And we just look back on it and we say, Jesus visited us in a very real, unique, and powerful way. And it's a moment, I think, that will echo many, many months in the future of our church. And so I, I was really encouraged by that. But today, as we look at this next set of verses, these six verses, as we close out Philippians chapter 3, I want to ask you a very popular question. It's a phrase you've probably heard before, but it's this. How do you eat an elephant? How do you eat an elephant? And if you know that phrase, you've probably heard that sentiment before. How do you eat an elephant? The answer to that is always one bite at a time. When a goal seems too big, when you have an objective in front of you, a destination that you want to get to, and it seems too big to conquer, the idea of how do you eat an elephant is you take it down one bite at a time. You take it down small increments over time. And as Paul continues here in Philippians 3, as we'll see in a moment, this encouragement to the church in Philippi and to us to wholeheartedly pursue Jesus, he starts to kind of narrow in on this idea as the Christian life is really a pursuit of maturity. That as a Christian, i got to move from a a baby in Christ to a mature, full-grown adult in Christ. If you look back at verses 15 and 16, he kind of mentions that there. He says we need to think and act in maturity as believers in Jesus. That as we learn the word, we need to also live the word. It doesn't do any good to know something and not do anything with it. And maturity in the Christian faith says, I know what Jesus has said, and now I'm going to live that out as I pursue him. Yet if you're like me, especially this past week, we're in this new year, we're all trying to stay uh, in tune with our goals and set forth these goals that we want to accomplish. And even for me, and we talked about this last week, like I want to be closer to Jesus this year than ever before. I want to be more mature in Christ this year than ever before. Yet if you're like me, if you have some of those goals and those pursuits, it seems like a daunting task at times, doesn't it? Because Christian maturity does not happen overnight. And we live in what I like to call a microwave hot pocket fast food generation. If my dinner takes more than 90 seconds to make, I don't want it. I can throw a hot pocket in the microwave and have a Philly cheesesteak in 90 seconds. It's awesome. We don't like to invest ourselves into things that are going to take time. It's hard. And Paul today gives us really just some of those daily moves, those little bites Those things that are going to help us move towards that goal of Christ-likeness and Christian maturity. Just three practical habits I want to give us today that hopefully we can forge these in our hearts. We can move towards these this week as we move towards Jesus. Three things, three encouragements from Paul. Here they are, starting in verse 17. Point number one is this. Paul says to follow a follower. To follow a follower. Look at what he said again in verse 17. He said, join in imitating me. Brothers and sisters, that's a term of endearment in the Christian faith. It means we're, we're family. Join in imitating me and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example that you have in us. So Paul encourages these Philippian believers, he encourages us to pursue Jesus as the goal, to move towards maturity. But I love this because he doesn't just, say, doesn't just tell us to do something. He says, I'm going to give you an example of someone that is doing it. There's a great distinction here, friends, I don't want us to miss this morning. There's great value in the Christian faith and in life in general to telling somebody to do something. But there's greater value in showing them how to do it. That's so important for us as parents, as Jesus followers. Because I could tell you that you need to intimately know Jesus. And you may amen that and agree with me. But if I show you how to intimately know Jesus, chances are you're going to do it better. 
I need to tell you that you need to kill sin and walk in obedience to Christ. But there's greater value if I show you how to do that. Last week, I could tell you that you need to share in the fellowship of Jesus' suffering. You've got to run to Him in your pain. But there's greater value when I show you how to do that. See, think, think about this. We may often do what we hear, but what we imitate will ultimately become our habits. If you have kids, you know this to be true. How often do we tell our kids to do something and it just falls on deaf ears? You need to clean your room. Ten minutes later, did you clean your room? What? It's a story of my life. Yet how often, when, if you have children, you're, you know, maybe you're in the car. I've done this before. This is a terrible example. Anyways, we were in the car one time. Sophia was probably five years old. A guy cut me off in a parking lot. And from the back seat, I heard these words, Get out of the way, you idiot! <laughs> Why is that? She heard it from her mom, obviously. <laughs> I think Liz is over there, so I'm safe. <laughs> Why is that? Because often we won't do what we're told, but we'll imitate those we look up to. And Paul encourages us in that here, that we need to find people as Jesus followers that are further along in their walk with Christ, that are more mature than we are. Get in a circle of people that know and love Jesus and watch them and imitate them. Look what he says here. Look back at verse 17. He gives us two blueprints, and I think this is important. People that we can look to. First, Paul says, look to me. Look what he said the very first part of verse 17. He says, join in imitating me. That's, a, that's a, an invitation for you and I this morning. If you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus and to walk in Christian maturity, you can look to Paul. Start all the way back in Acts chapter 9. Read through the book of Acts. You're going to see Paul's interactions that he had with people, the conversations that took place, where he went, how Paul spoke to people, what he spoke about, who he spoke to. Paul is a great blueprint for what it looks like to follow Jesus and move towards Christian maturity. And it's not because he had it all together. Sometimes we look at people in the scriptures like Paul and we're like, yeah, but he's like a super Christian. I mean, just go back a few verses to Philippians, Philippians 3, verse 12. What does Paul say? I haven't already reached the goal. I'm not perfect, but I'm making every effort to take hold of it. Paul doesn't say, look to me because I've got it all figured out. He says, look to me because I understand the urgency and the necessity of following Jesus. If you look for a perfect mentor, you'll never find one. But if you look for somebody that understands the urgency and necessity of pursuing Christ, that's a great person to imitate. Notice the second one here. What's our second blueprint? Paul says, don't only look to me. He says, also look to others as what it looks like to follow Christ. Verse 17, pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. You see, the invitation extends beyond just Paul. Paul says, look to other people. You guys remember back in chapter 2, we talked about two men that were near to the heart of Paul. One was named Timothy, that was Paul's closest protege, and another was Epaphroditus. He came from Philippi to be with Paul on house arrest. I have to imagine when Paul's writing this letter to the church in Philippi that those are probably two men he's thinking of in this church. He said, if you want people to look to and to look towards and what it looks like to live in Christian maturity, um, you need to look towards Timothy. You need to look to Epaphroditus. Friends, look around this room today. There's dozens of people that you can look to of what it looks like to walk and pursue Jesus. 
All you have to do is find somebody that's further along in the journey than you are. That doesn't always mean they have to be older than you too, by the way. You know we have some incredible young people in this church that are in their college years, their young adult years, that are so far along in their walk with Jesus, sometimes it astonishes me. You can even look sometimes to a child and see what faith in Jesus looks like. Paul simply says to imitate somebody else. Watch them, observe them, model them, learn from them, and then what? Imitate them. Hey, here's a side note on this. This is so important. Make sure that you as a follower of Jesus are somebody worth imitating. I learned years ago when, when I became an intern at a church in Lancaster, Ohio. My, the guy that, that mentored me said this, Aaron, somebody's always watching you, whether you realize it or not. Somebody's always looking to you. They may be younger than you, they may be older than you, but somebody's always looking to you. Ask yourself the question today, could I be the answer to somebody's prayer of a mentor they need? Can somebody look to me and see what it looks like to follow Jesus? Do I not only talk my talk, but I walk it out too? You see, Paul's first encouragement is this, follow a follower. You want to move towards holiness this year? You want to be mature in Christ this year? Follow a follower. Follow somebody that's chasing Jesus. Here's point number two. Paul says, flee from fakes. Flee from fakes. Look at verse 18 and 19. He says, for I have often told you, and now I say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So right after he gives this encouragement to imitate other followers, he says, hey, I'm going to warn you of a group of people again that you're probably familiar with. This time he uses very strong language about these people. He calls them enemies. That's a strong word. Earlier in Philippians 3, he just called them evil. Now he calls them enemies. He says, these are enemies of the cross of Christ. Who were these? These were the Judaizers again. Now, pause here. Some of you, maybe if you're a student of the Bible, you might know this. Paul doesn't really give us any indication that he's directly talking about the Judaizers. And there's theories in Christian circles and theologians that think maybe he's talking about the Gentile Gnostics. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. And then there's the Judaizers that he could be referring to. For sake of context, based on what we've studied so far, we're going to go the route that he's talking about Judaizers. If you want to talk about the other one, we can talk about that later. All right. So the Judaizers, who were they? They were Jewish converts. Do you remember this? Jewish converts who believed that you had to have faith in Jesus, plus also follow the Jewish system and the Jewish tradition. Those things combined were what led to your salvation, the Judaizers. And for them, what was so important to them was faith in Jesus and the act of circumcision, that covenant with God. They thought that that was a, a big issue that they needed to follow and they had to do. If you didn't adhere to Jesus plus Jewish custom, in their view, you weren't really saved. Paul says the opposite. He says your ultra-hyper-religion is not what gets you saved. Now, notice this too. Look at me at Philippians 3 again, verse 18. There's a unique phrase here to Philippians 3. Paul hasn't used this before in this whole letter. He says that phrase, with tears. When referencing the Judaizers, he says, with tears. Or your Bible might say, with weeping, I tell you about these guys again. This is the same phrase that uh, was used of Peter in Matthew 26 when he denied Jesus three times. And it says he went away weeping. He went away with tears. It's this idea of this gut-wrenching pain that you have because of what has just occurred. Paul says now, when he writes of the Judaizers, these false teachers, he says, I do so to the point of tears. This is important, friends. Why is that? Because these are wolves in sheep's clothing. These are bad people. 
These are people that Paul says, you've got to flee from these people. Why is that? We said this several weeks ago. They were lessening the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. When Jesus went voluntarily to that cross and bore the weight of mankind, mankind's sin on his shoulders and died and then resurrected, that was completely sufficient for your salvation and my salvation. If you add anything to that or you say you have to do anything else in order to be saved, you're a false teacher. And Paul says you need to run from those people. If the cross was not sufficient, then Jesus was a liar and we should just go home. That's why Paul, when he talks about them, he's, he's weeping. This is so important to him. What was he weeping over? A couple things I want us to see. He's weeping over the salvation of the Judaizers, I believe. Because they believed, maybe, that they were really saved. And Paul says, no, 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 you're not. They're not saved because you don't add to the gospel. It's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus plus something is false teaching. It's just Jesus. I think of Romans chapter 9 when I, when I picture Paul writing, off, writing down these words about the Judaizers here. If you remember in Romans chapter 9 when speaking of the Jewish nation, Paul says, I wish myself that I would be cut off from Christ if it meant my brothers and sisters could be saved. And as he's writing, he says, these are enemies of the cross of Christ. I can imagine Paul thinking to himself, man, I would be willing to give up eternity in heaven if it meant these false teachers would come to salvation. See, a false, false gospel never gets you anywhere. Secondly, I think Paul was probably weeping over their destruction. Philippians chapter 3, the very first part, is very clear that the Judaizers had probably infiltrated the church in Philippi. That they were probably leading people astray left and right, getting them to compromise the gospel. If you remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul helped found this church. And I imagine as Paul is penning these words to this church that he hopes to visit again someday, that as he's weeping, he's not only weeping over the Judaizers, but he's weeping over people that he loved because they were being led astray by false teaching and false theology. Now notice, we're going to go to verse 19 in a second. This is so important here. We have more access to Bible teaching now than any other point in human history. There are more false teachers that are being paraded and they have platforms now because of social media and they have platforms because of the internet and the news and so many things, radio, all this crazy stuff. If whoever you listen to, myself included, Pastor Joe included, does not teach from the word of God a sound theology, run from them. It is deceptive. We don't just cherry pick the word of God and I like this, I like this, now I'm going to run to a pop culture, self-help, Western Christianity type of gospel that makes me feel good. Jesus is my best friend, now let's go run through a field of lilies together. Stop it. It's not the gospel. The gospel says that i got to know Jesus, that I share in the fellowship of his suffering. The, the gospel says that all of these things that Christ died for me and that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. If you hear anything else, run from it. If you, can go to a, if you can go to a church or listen to a preacher online and they don't reference the Bible at least once, let's just say every 90 seconds, leave. We don't need that junk. It's deceptive and it's dangerous. That was free. That wasn't in my notes. <laughs> Look at how Paul describes him in verse 19. These false teachers. This is why it's so important, friends. This is why like, we've got to run from these people. He says their end is destruction. We're going to talk about that in a second. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. They're focused on earthly 
things. Their end is destruction. What does that mean? Paul doesn't mince words here. He says these false teachers were separated from Jesus and leading other people down the exact same path. Why? Because the gospel says Jesus secured my salvation. You add to that, it's no longer the gospel. If you believe or teach anything that says you have to do something to be saved, Paul says you're not saved. Why? Because salvation is dependent upon Jesus. You don't earn it. You don't keep it. Jesus does. End of the day. He says their God is their stomach. Your Bible might say this. Your Bible might say that their God is their appetite. Let me give you an illustration to understand this. You've got, again, these are kids' illustrations today. Um, If you have a child, when your child turns three or four years old, a niece, a nephew, something like that, you begin to learn about the interworkings of a child's stomach. Some of you understand this. You see, it's really interesting. At 5 o'clock every day, both of my girls are hungry for dinner. And my wife will make a great meal. We'll sit down, and they have a great plate of food. They got their main dish and a veggie and a fruit and a glass of water or something. And we start to eat. What's really interesting about a three- or four-year-old, though, is about four or five bites in, what happens? I'm full. Ten minutes earlier, they were starving. Now they're full. Why is that? Well, for some reason, in the inner workings of a three- or four-year-old's stomach, when they eat, this is science, folks, if you didn't know this, when it comes to healthy food, their stomach is only about the size of a golf ball. But what's really interesting is about 15 minutes later, you learn about the other part of a child's stomach. You see, there's the healthy portion, and then there's what we like to call the snack side. The healthy portion is the size of a golf ball. The snack size is actually bottomless. <laughs> and it's so interesting. I've, I've quickly learned that while the healthy side can only tolerate about three or four bites, the snack side in a period of 10 minutes can eat a bowl of cereal, four cheese sticks, a cookie, half a can of Pringles, a glass of chocolate milk, and a handful of goldfish at three years old. Why is that? Because they're bottomless. And then you hear this classic phrase, after, I'm not making this stuff up. You want to see this in action? Come to my house this afternoon. As soon as they're done, you hear that famous phrase. They have literally just eaten half of the daggone pantry. And what do you hear? I'm still hungry. It's an insatiable appetite. And when Paul uses that phrase, I want us to see that there, that their God is their stomach. What's he talking about? These false teachers, these Judaizers were consumed consumed with pursuing religion. From every indication that Paul gives us, their religious efforts in their eyes were never enough. They always believed that you needed to do more, that you needed to be more, and you had to try harder. It was an insatiable appetite for religion. You know that's why the self-help gospel will always fail? Because it will never be satisfied? Ever thought about that? If we truly believe satisfaction is found in Christ, then guess what? I actually arise every day totally satisfied in Jesus. A self-help gospel says you have to do more today so you can be better tomorrow. The self-help gospel says you have to try harder today so you can be better tomorrow. And you know there's never an end in sight. That's why self-help books are always the number one selling books in America. That's why self-help gospel books are always the number one selling books in America. And guess what? Nobody's actually ever released one of these books where they actually say, here's the solution. Don't buy any more of my books. We figured it out. They have to come out with new ones every year. Why? Because it's an insatiable appetite towards religion. Self-help is just another form of religion. That was free too. I don't know where that stuff's coming from. (laughs) You see, the gospel says instead Jesus is enough. The reason I do things for Jesus is my overflow of love for him, my gratitude to him. 
It's not based on religion. It's based on satisfaction. I've been satisfied in Christ. Therefore, the overflow is love and doing things for Jesus. Here's the last descriptor. Paul says in verse 19, the glory of these false teachers is their shame. They were so focused on their fleshly efforts to obtain salvation that they missed Jesus. That's why Paul has to, in the beginning of chapter 3, list his resume of accomplishments because the Judaizers are like, look how religious I am. That's not the gospel. The gospel says I'm nothing, Jesus is everything. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, saved by grace through faith. It's not from me. There's nothing I can do to earn it. It's God's gift. Why? So that nobody can boast. We boast in Jesus. We boast in Jesus at this church. Because the Bible is very clear that our greatest efforts, religious or non-religious alike, pale in comparison to what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And if anybody teaches something contrary to that, Paul says, run, flee from fakes. Here's our very next one. Last encouragement. Follow a follower. Flee from fakes. And here's the last one. Fixate on the kingdom. Pursuit of holiness. Fixate on the kingdom. Verses 19 and 20. Paul says the Judaizers were focused on earthly things. But us, our citizenship is in heaven. That's a timely word this week, isn't it? And we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Judaizers focused on earthly things, focused on doing things here on earth with the end goal of here. But he says, as Jesus followers, we fixate on a different focus. We fixate on heaven. Judaizers focused and preoccupied with religious earthly pursuits, but Christians instead were preoccupied with heaven. Why? Our citizenship is there. If you know your history or you know geography, Philippi and Rome were several hundred miles apart. But for somebody to be a resident of Philippi, that was a Roman colony. Therefore, they would live in Philippi but have a citizenship grounded in Rome. Rome was the hub and epicenter of the known world. So while they may live in Philippi, they were actually Roman citizens. Revelation 20 says that Jesus has a book with names written in it. Those who have repented of their sin and confessed Christ. In that book, if your name is written down, it means you have a citizenship in a place called heaven with a person named Jesus. And while your citizenship is there, just like the Philippians, you temporarily live here. This is not our home, friends. It's a temporary dwelling place. And as Adrian Rogers used to say, I'm just passing through. And when I pass away, my address is going to change. Heaven is my home. But notice the promise that Paul makes here. Notice the promise he makes in verse 20. He said, although our citizenship is in heaven, what do we do? We eagerly wait for a savior from there. We eagerly wait for a savior from heaven. We may live here, but someday, John 14 says, Jesus will come back to bring us there. We may live here, but someday the church is going home. And that's the posture that we take in holiness. I love that thought, eagerly waiting. What a great posture for the Christian to keep. How are you doing today? I'm eagerly waiting. For what, Jesus? My goodness, that would be so good. A posture of eagerly waiting when the world is falling apart around us. My goodness, let's look outside, right? This week has been chaos. When the world is falling apart, what do Christians do? We live in a state of calm and collected and cool. Why? Because our home is not here. Things may be collapsing around us, friends. It's crazy right now. We're not going to get into politics and viewpoints because it doesn't matter this morning. 
We're not going to get into that today. But when things are collapsing around us, the Christians, as Ray Ortland said a few weeks ago, should have a prophetic calm about them. We're not from here. We're waiting for a place called heaven. I was thinking... (laughs) thinking of just this thought this week that as, as so much is going on around us and people are freaking out like crazy, everybody's getting banned on social media, the news is going nuts, it's just insanity what's going on around our world right now. It's okay for the Christian to go, you know what, it's all good because I'm not from here and someday my dad's going to come get me. I don't know if he's going to send a bus ticket so I can go there if he'll come get me himself, but someday he's going to come because he promised that he would come and get me. Look at verse 21. Paul says when he does come, he'll transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. What does that mean? Paul says the sin we see around us is going to be gone because Jesus is going to transform us. The pain we experience, it's going to be gone because Jesus will transform us. The division and hatred we see, it's going to be gone because Jesus will transform us. The brokenness we experience, it's going to be gone because Jesus is going to take care of everything. We will be in the presence of Christ and we will be made whole. We will be with him and we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Is, that's good news. Pursuing holiness. I want to close with a story I read actually last night at like 8 o'clock. And I stole this from John MacArthur. If you're familiar with him, he's a preacher out in California. And I feel like this story really summed up this thought from verses 15 to 21 for Paul. And, and it just, just really spoke to me. And so it's about a guy, his name's Focus. This is a real story. It was recorded by an Asian bishop years ago. And I think this really will help sum up what Paul's saying here in, in verses 15 through 21. So listen to this. It says, a story of a man who really lived, and his name was Phocas, P-H-O-C-A-S. He lived in the fourth century. He has been revered through the years as a real precious saint of God, lived in Asia Minor. He lived in the city of Sanape, and he had a little cottage outside of the city gate in which he grew a small garden. The whole story of this man's life is recorded by one of the ancient bishops, and somehow it's found its way down through history. And the story goes like this, that travelers often passed his door at all hours of the day and night as they went in and out of the city gate. And by the holy ingenuity of love, it's said that focus would often stop many of those people. Why did he do that? Were they not weary He stopped them to let them rest, to sit in his garden for just a moment. Maybe those travelers were in need of a friendly word, and he would speak that friendly word to them in the master's name, the name of Jesus. But then quite suddenly, one day, life was changed completely for focus. Orders went out from the emperor that all Christians must be put to death. And when the persecutors entered Sanape, they were under orders to find one man, a man by the name of Phocus, and their orders were to kill him. Well, about to enter the city one hot afternoon, they passed in front of Phocus's cottage by his garden near the gate. In his innocence, not knowing what was happening, Phocus treated them as though they were his warmest friends. And as his persecutors came, he offered them a place to rest and to pause, and they consented. So warm and gracious was the hospitality that these persecutors received that when Focus invited them to stay the night and go on their way refreshed the next day, they actually agreed to do so. And what is your business, Focus asked them. 
And when they told him that they would answer his question, if only he would regard their answer as a secret. Well, obviously to them, his focus was a man who could be trusted. Who were they? Why were soldiers of Rome searching for a certain man named Focus, who was a Christian? And if their kind host knew Focus, would he be so good to help them identify him? You see, from what they heard and what they told Focus, they heard of this man named Focus, who was a dangerous Christian. And by order of the emperor, they had to come to this city and execute him. Do you know him, they asked Focus? Focus replied, actually, I know him quite well. And by the way, he's actually pretty near. But let's wait till morning, and then I'll let you know who Focus is. His persecutors, his guests, they retired in the other room, and Focus sat there thinking, should I escape now? That would be easy. I could leave under the cover of darkness and by daybreak be at least 20 miles away. Yet Focus knew that if he went and stayed with other Christians who would give him shelter, that they could probably be killed in the search for Focus. The decision to flee to safety or stay there in his house, in his garden, to the point of death, he made without struggle or delay. I can only imagine what was going on in Focus's mind. So that night, as his persecutors went to sleep, he went out into the garden that he loved, and he began digging. See, there was no earthly thing that he loved better than that little plot of ground outside his cottage. He loved the feel of the soil. What were his thoughts as he kept digging? Nobody really knows. Some suspect that he thought maybe there's still time to run away, but he remembered that his Savior didn't run. His Savior didn't run from Gethsemane. He didn't run from Calvary. Then he thought to himself, maybe I could go to those Christians who would give me rest, but those executioners surely would find me and kill them too. Yet, if I did run, what about my executioners? They were men with orders. And if they don't fulfill their orders... Likely they would be killed. And who knew where they would spend eternity? So what did Focus do? He kept digging in his garden. Before dawn he was done and there it was. After an entire night of digging in his own garden with his persecutors in the room just inside the house, Focus had dug his own grave. Morning came as executioners walked out. He calmly looked at them. There's that prophetic calm. He said, I am Focus. And the Christian bishop wrote that we have it recorded that those men, those persecutors, came to kill Focus, simply looked at him motionless in absolute astonishment. They couldn't believe it. You see, obviously, they were reluctant to perform an execution on a man who had shown them so much mercy and so much love. But Focus reminded them it was their duty. He said, I'm not bitter at you. Instead, death does not terrify me. I have a heart filled of hope. Hope in a place called heaven. And yet toward them, focus bore nothing but love. And moments later, it was all over. Their sword had done its work, and the body of Christ's man lay in the stillness of death in that hole he dug in his own garden. See, I read that story, and I think of Paul, so deeply broken over people that didn't know Christ, false teachers. 
to the point of weeping. I think of Paul encouraging us to remember our citizenship is in heaven. This world has no bound on me. Paul said to live is Christ, to die is gain. And friends, in a world that's falling apart, remember, we're not bound here. My hope is not in a politician. My hope is not in a country. My hope is not in my house or anything that this may bind me to this place called earth. Our hope is in heaven. And it's in Jesus. And I'm going to pursue Christ with every part of my being until I'm called home. And I've been praying so hard for you. We had a group that met before church this morning. We're praying that you'll do the same. Because change in this world is going to come through a church that sees heaven as their home and wants to take as many people as possible with us. As our praise team comes, I want us to sing. And as we started last week, and we're going to continue to do this for the foreseeable future, we're going to allow our altars to be open if you need to come and pray, if you need to pray with someone about something. Um, As we said last week, an altar is a very special, sacred place. It's just the front of a stage, but we know that when we make a public move towards Jesus, it helps solidify personal decisions. And so I'll be down front right here praying and singing along with you. If I can pray with you, come join me, and I would love to do that. But we're going to spend the next three or four minutes as we sing and as we pray, um, just seeking the Lord and asking Him to move in our lives personally. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for time and your word this morning, and, and God, what you have spoken very clearly to us. God, may you continue to forge in us the truth that we are citizens of heaven. God, may we be students of the word. May we be passionate followers of Jesus that are constantly killing sin and walking in obedience, chasing Jesus with our whole being. Thank you for the cross, Father. So, Lord, as we sing this morning, as we pray every week, I pray that the sounds of our voices and these words that we form in this moment are a sweet sound of worship through the corridors of heaven today. That they bring you the glory that you deserve. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for our time and your word today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.